Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to Genuine Humans podcast. And uh, again, as always, Wendy Christie is my fabulous co-host. Hello, Wendy. How are you doing? Hello. Good. Thank you. Yes, it's been blowing a hoolie out here, but hopefully things will settle soon. How are you? Yeah, of course, because up in Scotland, well, I know we were all on alert for storms, but it was pretty bad for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a, a, a wild night and not in a good way. Okay, but you're safe. <laughs> Absolutely fine. And hopefully not suffering from any broken windows or anything. But we have today Megan Harrison, the VP of Global Marketing at Saint-Pierre, uh, which is part of Grupo Bimbo. And Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And we're going to hear a bit more about what you've been up to. Um, but also, I know that you've had an amazing career up to date and you've left, led development of really iconic household brands such as like Huggies, Durex, Warburton's and Imperial Leather, just to name a few. So I want to give you the opportunity to sort of give us a little breakdown of how you've got to where you are now and also what you're doing at Saint-Pierre. Yes, well, good morning and thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'm really looking forward to, to chatting to you both around all of these topics that we share actually overall um, some, some key things. So I guess for me, you know, I think my, my career always started and has continued, thankfully, and, and been structured really around what I enjoy. And I'm still to this day can say I'm so lucky to enjoy working and enjoy my career. And I think that's always been um, quite a big deal that I did with myself from the beginning. So I think right from the beginning, without knowing that, I really sort of followed my interests. And interestingly, right at the beginning, they did fall into two quite different, distinct camps. I had a real passion for textiles, and yet also real curiosity and passion for science, and probably some of the unknown of that, I think. And so I really shaped kind of my GCSE selections, then my A-level selections around those two things. But eventually, um, I ended up then doing a science degree. And that was really because I thought in the end, I could probably get back to creativity, even if I did a science degree, but it'd be probably quite difficult to get back to science if I chose the creativity route. And I guess um, that not only echoes what I said about just really wanting to enjoy whatever I was doing, but it actually then started to form the very early stages of my career because the first graduate job I then took was with a company called Smith & Nephew that I'm sure everybody knows. And at that point, they had a consumer product arm. And the reason why I took that job and got it was not only Smith & Nephew being a great business with a very good, credible graduate scheme, but actually I was working on the Lillette's brand of sanitary protection. And at that point, I took that job as a product developer. And you can already see, therefore, the combination of fibres and absorbency, but science very much playing through that. And actually, 
I always find that interesting that there was a job out there that somehow could combine those those random interests, albeit in um, sanitary protection. And so I guess that was sort of my first foray into consumer, into a, a consumer business. And little did I know at that point just how intrigued and curious I would become about the consumer and the psychology of the consumer and how that then drives businesses and brands, um, which has really sort of continued throughout my career. And and that very, very fortunate stumble first, let's say, into FMCG really was just the most fantastic eye-opener. And I, I've never left uh, FMCG since, knowing how much really I, over time I've really, really enjoyed, enthused around the, the learning more and more and more about the consumer. So from there, then I actually went into um, to work for Kimberly Clark, and um, still at this point in product development, I started working on the Huggies brand. And again, you can see the theme there of absorbency and fibres. But very quickly, actually, I flipped into marketing, and that was my first real sort of uh, opportunity in marketing. Um, and Kimberly Clark were a fan, are still a fantastic business, very very values orientated, fantastic leadership capabilities, but also focus. And um, this fantastic brand in Huggies. And that was um, a European role and really where I cut my teeth, I guess, in marketing at a classical level. So very classically trained, very, very lucky. But that role as well, looking after four European markets and also, I think, learning how to attack a very, very big leading brand in P&G's Pampers. So we were a, a very clear number two to Pampers in the European markets. And I think that gives you a really, really laser sharp focus on what you have to do and some pace around doing that. Um, And of course, they really are the masters of of branding and and consumer-led businesses as well. That must be fun being number two, though, because it's kind of like you can see them in your sights, a little bit more sort of worrying for them in many ways, because you're sort of like, you know, really snapping at their heels. Yeah, I think it's really uniting and gives businesses and brands great focus and more of that in a little while because actually that got even stronger when when I started working on a challenge brand where really your number one goal is to to start exposing and challenging the leaders in the category and that is fun as you say but also hugely uniting um, if not slightly exhausting but uh, I think it really really does refocus the lens on what you have to do and and yeah I think I think it's a great thing to be able to rally around as well as an organization fantastic so from there I then moved into a smaller business and I remember thinking at that time and this is a fairly common theme I think around my career as well that I loved those big businesses loved really understanding and learning what what FMCG was about what the consumer was about what brands were about how we took those brands to market but I remember distinctly thinking these big businesses are are so big that actually to move and have impact and drive that performance is quite slow, actually. And um, really wanting to get some more medium-sized businesses at that point or something slightly smaller at the very least. And then I went to work on the Durex brand. By this point, certainly my husband really is saying to me, this is slightly getting embarrassing. (laughs) Do you think you could work on any brands above the belt and perhaps slightly less um, embarrassing to talk about? But again, I guess this was classical personal care FMCG and this was a really interesting role because it was a global role and my remit really was very much about how do we use all that equity around our core business of condoms and actually start really expanding all that brand strength into the broader sexual well-being arena and of course what comes with that is growth 
and innovation and expansion. And that was a fascinating role, but also a fantastic extension of my European roles into global this time and and really far-reaching across the world from China to US to Asia to Europe again and lots of different business situations across those but really getting to the bottom of the consumer there and really what is motivating the consumer and trying to form some common global ground around that when you have really very very distinct and different cultures levels of acceptance levels of and in some areas you know sexual well-being was a very taboo subject so really sort of getting under the skin of that and forming a brand opportunity around it was really really key and another really really big thing then really started me forming sort of this this much more transformational element to my career was that at that point, this was a very, very sales-driven organisation in high growth. And there was a real remit as well around getting more of that consumer and brand focus and really uniting more of a strategic consumer brand lens around what we were doing. And that was hugely, hugely interesting, but really, really quite challenging because particularly on that topic, Um, You can imagine how people were just sort of, you know, the supply network is so wayward anyway. And I think, you know, to drive sales, there was a lot of sort of bartering around the back that was going on. So um, that were making making the, the business successful. So it was quite quite a tough one to start drawing that back to a, a consumer and, and, and brand strategy. Having said that, I think this was one of my favorite places to work. It was an absolute joy. Wonderful people to work with. Um, I can still remember the belly laughs either on the topic or with absolutely fun people working such a diverse culture and that business was so successful that it was actually acquired by Reckitt Ben Kaiser and so I did the latter part of my my time there with Reckitt Ben Kaiser which is also a phenomenal experience very very different culture but also um, a great sort of insight into acquisition and bringing a brand into the fold of a very very big and successful blue chip FMCG. So really, really interesting time there. And I can imagine, sorry, sorry to sort of jump in, but I'm just, I'm just trying to sort of think about that time before it was bought, because there was a real use of humour. I mean, that that's sort of the time, you know, that you were building that brand, all those challenges that you say about across different countries and different approaches to the, to the products. But I do remember as a brand that there was a lot of humour and brand building at that time so yeah that really came across yeah and I think you know getting that humor right was always quite important um you know really and also getting that culturally right was really really quite important as well and you know we did finally move that communications platform on to be able to sort of encompass all of those different things but um as you say a great topic to be able to drive lots of humor and um lots of tongue-in-cheek um, interpretations of, of of the brand and, and take it to places and and actually really normalize it as well. I think that was a huge job of the brand at the time, particularly where the, that topic can be quite taboo depending on you know which markets you're you're talking in. So it cuts it can cut through that as well if used really really well. And so from there, I then did actually make the move into into food and drink. Finally, did get to the other side of FMCG, and I then took a job with Warburton's. And this was a really, really interesting but different challenge to anything else really I'd ever done. And the the, the biggest reason for that was this is a privately owned business. 
the shareholders actively working in the business every day. Phenomenal group of people, again, and a very values-led business again. And I think it's fair to say fairly operational and sales-led, but with this huge passion for the brand, because, of the, of course, the brand is the name of the family. And that brings a really, really different dynamic to the way that you might either brand build or start um, really driving the consumer slightly more strongly in that in that environment. And the other really interesting thing there is there are no, it's, it's, it's not PLC, of course, so the long-term view is so prevalent. And I think also this real subtlety around the influencing network, how does that work? And, you know, without that, the, the PLC shareholder to serve every quarter, that really does bring about very different ways of working that you really have to get used to, especially if you're going to try and start influencing those agendas. So really, really great business, phenomenally successful, huge in the UK, but a significant there point, point there that this was a UK only business and a real shift again from European and global then into UK only and really sort of getting under the skin of that P&L and, and driving the performance purely in that market. So a really great experience, absolutely loved the brand and loved, loved working in that business as well. And from there, then I flipped actually into one of their competitors and I took on an, a, a really meaty challenge with Robert's Bakery. And they had got to a point where they were, they really wanted to do something different with their business. They, you know, a lot of the baking industry is quite traditional. And I think, you know, as fourth in the market, you have a real choice about whether you are going to do the same as everybody else or really think differently. And that was really the brief that was given to me is that um, we wanted to, to really treat uh, that brand is a challenger brand and really relaunch it as a challenger brand. And as I said earlier, I think that is almost like you almost unlearn and reteach yourself everything that you've ever learned about marketing, working on a challenger brand. So with all that great experience, you have to sort of reprogram yourself and reset yourself again to acutely focus on attack all the time, attack and exposing the leaders in the category and you have got to really bring creativity to the role every single day into how are you going to think differently, start to be more bold, actually take a lot more risk every day in what you're doing just to cut through and be able to command essentially greater share of voice than anybody else in the category through your actions. And obviously that is the spirit, as we know, of a challenger brand. And I think what was so energizing and uniting around that again was that we were able to develop the business mission around that, unite a workforce around it. And then essentially also, I think um, what's really interesting about Challenger Brand is, you know, you can start to use that to drive the way that you operate each day in the office. And, you know, some phenomenal, some phenomenal books been been written about that, which we we really turn to in, in those times and a fantastic experience. And I really do think having run a challenger brand, you apply that again every day, whether you're running leading brands or follower brands, because those principles never leave you. And actually the most valuable thing actually is then applying those challenger brand principles to a leading brand because the whole risk of running a leading brand is that you fall into the trap of complacency. And if you've run a challenge around, you never take that for granted again. And you're always trying to work out ways to to prod and, and get that airtime for yourself. So um, another fantastic experience. That's such an interesting thing to have just kind of like constantly be in challenger mode. That's that's a real that's a real sort of penny drop moment for me as well, actually, because 
yeah, I can imagine that, as you say, complacency is that sort of threat for the big brands. So, so that's just part of your DNA now. Exactly. I think it really is. And it's, it, you have to work quite hard to keep it afterwards, I think, because, you know, but, but really starting to think about differently about what you're doing, the use of PR, the use of how that works with social and digital, you know, budgets are a lot tighter so you you've got to be really creative with what you have but it is exhausting because as you uh rightly acknowledged every day that's your goal and it's and you've got to roll your sleeves up and and really get stuck in so it's um yeah it's a fantastically grounding experience as well but I think also one that that yeah will never leave me and from there, then I went back to personal care in FMCG again. So took a role with PZ Cousins, who were on a hugely transformational journey that they were very public about wanting to start to reinvigorate the business around a consumer and brand-led agenda. And I was looking after the, the UK brands of Carex, Imperial Leather, and um, Original Source as well. So that was a a phenomenally all-encompassing journey, the whole organization we're on, but obviously lots of work for the marketeers to do. And again, I think the really, you know, some really iconic brands in there, as you already mentioned, Tamara, Imperial Leather, how you treat that quite carefully is is really, really key. And um, we did eventually manage to relaunch Imperial Leather back to its Imperial roots after years of... um, Sort of, I suppose, you know, it, it, it kind of being slightly neglected, um, which is a great, great achievement. And that really leads me then back to uh, where I am today. So I then took a role back in bakery, which is very surprising for myself. But this was an absolute gem of an opportunity. You already introed so well, Tamara, knowing a little bit about our business. But we have this wonderfully stylish, premium French bakery brand in Saint-Pierre that has been built and grown phenomenally in the last five years to achieve such success that it um, attracted the attention of Grupo Bimbo. And they acquired the Saint-Pierre brand about a year and a quarter ago. And this, to me, provides the backdrop of a really, really interesting future for the brand. Very successful already in two markets, the UK and the US, But with Grupa Bimbo's phenomenal operational presence around the world, we have this real opportunity to grow this brand globally to a phenomenal level over the next five years. So a really great opportunity. Part of that is driving the integration post-acquisition as well. And again, I look back to my direct record days as some of the reference there. But also, of course, a lot of work to be done in really driving that, that consumer and brand approach again. And I think because the, the business has grown so entrepreneurially through distribution and done such a great job of that, of course, we are now in a really great position to be able to start really driving that consumer agenda harder as well. I love it. All paths led to here. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting, actually, to hear, hear that that summary of your whole career. And there really seem to be some clear common threads running through it um you talked about a lot of science and how you know you seem to thrive being in those challenger brand positions and I'd be really interested to to go back a little bit and see how much of that you think started when you were a child so let's start fairly broadly and just talk about what you were like as a child yeah, I mean, it's really funny. I, I guess I was I was sport obsessed from the beginning and played a lot of sport. And I think that's influenced really by my 
my dad, who was a fantastic sportsman, and just sort of turned my hand to to anything and, and absolutely loved it. Always talkative. That still remains today. I'm sure people would still describe me as as talkative, energetic, and actually a little bit rebellious. And I think that's really, really, you know, echoes lots of all of the roles that I've taken. I mean, I do remember pushing the boundaries, but equally, I didn't really cause my, my parents any real problems either. But I know today that still exists. You know, I do enjoy sort of a challenge. I do enjoy just pushing the envelope a little bit. And also that comes with creativity, I think, that, you know, thinking out of the box differently, solving problems, I think is all very much grounded in that. Definitely. And when you were when you were little, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? I mean, I really didn't. But again, I think, you know, through talking with you guys, it's quite interesting. And the, num- the two things I remember thinking very young were either like to be a fashion designer or an astronaut, neither of which have come true, of course. But again, if you look at the both of those, one has a real flavour of creativity in it. I was never a good enough artist to have done that. But the other one is, is and the astronaut is about that exploration and actually very, very science-based, even though I wasn't thinking like that at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they were echoes of some of that thread of those things I enjoyed that, that I talked about right at the beginning. Maybe. When you were little, did you have particular people that you looked up to, whether they were in the public eye or, you know, people that you knew? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure my parents. My mum ran her own business she was a fantastic role model. But my dad also not only was a fantastic sportsman, but also supported my mum's career and her ambitions and then therefore made it perfectly acceptable for two careers to exist in the household. And I think what that led me to probably is like it never crossed my mind that I wouldn't have a career. It never crossed yeah. my mind that I wouldn't have a stimulating job or or go and, 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 and be able to do what, what anybody else can do and I think always as a child probably your role models do end up being the family I mean my siblings of course as well got two siblings you know we're very very happy and and very lucky to be in that situation but it was always quite keen to know that they they approved too I guess especially when you're younger and then of course there's the usual pop stars sports stars uh, I do remember like probably Madonna and, and Andre Agassi coming into that, um, you know, half wanting to be a, a sports a sports star um, as well. And how about as, as you've, you, you know, developed into an adult and you've got your career, have there been particular genuine humans who've influenced you along the way or, or given you that extra bit of support that you'd like to acknowledge? Yeah, I think there are three people who really stick out for me and there is a common thread in them, but they are all really, really different. First was one of my leaders at Kimberly Clark, a guy called Mark Patterson, who was our departmental head. And, you know, I've already referenced Kimberly Clark is a very, very high values business, a really, really great business with some very, very good people working, working in it. But I think what he really showed me was true leadership, even at that very early stage, that was a great role model, actually, for how leaders should and can behave. Um, I think really he he was values-led, he set high standards, but he was genuine, he was human, he was principled, and where he didn't really agree but knew that it would be better to engage us in a different way, he would find a way around perhaps some of those difficult things in organisations that become quite restrictive. And I love not only his creativity, but I think also the way that he 
he managed that without getting himself in trouble. And I thought, what, what a very smart person um, and a great example. My second would be a, a lady called Sue Yell. And I met her at Warburton's and she's is still the HR director at Warburton's and a phenomenal in, influence actually to me personally and in my career. I think really the reasons for that is she is a very, very smart lady who has had to learn and work within very male-dominated environments through her career. But what I love about Sue and her leadership is that she has never used that as a negative. She has only um, thought about really what women can bring to the leadership mix. So as a real positive, we we might bring different things and we can influence in a really different way with a very different style. And actually we can balance some of those uh, more difficult topics and the way that they're approached through a very different approach. And so actually utilising the strength of the skill set versus sort of being intimidated by that or in any way apologetic was, was something that I really, really thought was just the most fantastic learning curve. She's very, very influential in women in leadership. And I think, you know, she also set up a fantastic forum in the business for that. She had the most fantastic speakers and all of those contributed very much to kind of the, the, you know, my own principles around how to lead, but also support others in their development and, you know, in their, in reaching their, their, their true potential along their own journeys as well. And the third would be an extremely kind and human gentleman called Andrew Gagan. I met him only fairly recently, really, in the last three or four years, and has been such a great influence, again, in my career, in my own personal development. He, again, is so human, generous, kind, but super smart. And what I love about him and what he's shown me, again, is that you can still behave with absolute integrity even right at the top and as you wish to. And to me, again, that's a huge value that really, really matters. And I think, again, great example that I will carry forward as I continue on my path. Thank you. And actually, I'm going to sort of like bring us back up to date, although I'm also thinking just based on what you were saying that I feel like there needs to be a Saint-Pierre NASA tie-up there somewhere. This this is how you can bring in two of your worlds together. It can still happen. Absolutely. Let's send some buns to space. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I do want to go back to you, you talked about your your transformational roles and you know your passion really comes through when you're talking about this. Can you just delve into a little bit more about why you think that that really drives you? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of change and impact has always floated my boat. Um, and I remember, as I said in my early career, thinking I. I I need to get some small businesses here because you're so lost in this massive juggernaut. And actually, I really wanted to drive more action. And I had a lot more energy, I felt, to give to driving performance than sometimes I, I could do in, 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 in those really, really big businesses really early on anyway. And I, I think that reflects over all my energy and drive that, you know, can, can be a great thing. That it also has some, some downsides, of course. But I think that energy and drive coupled with my curiosity about the consumer and sort of what makes them tick, I think, and, and really my huge sort of belief that that will drive sustainable business growth in the end is probably why I've, I've ended up sort of really 
always exploring those slightly more challenging transformational roles. And I think, you know, to do those, you do have to have some of that thirst of wanting to go and lift up the rocks and find out Mm. because it does take quite a lot of effort and energy and you do need to be pretty tenacious and and determined. And I, I think they, I can luckily count within my strengths as well and relishing that challenge uh, again although all of those have you know have have lots of disadvantages uh, as well and obviously when you're leading through this sort of change there is a, a lot about your approach and perhaps supporting future leaders coming through as well what what is your approach to supporting the the future leaders in the business yeah i mean that's really interesting particularly when you're in transformational circumstances because often either all of the tools are not in place to support people's development or also it's pretty frenetic so sometimes you know finding the right amount of brain space and time to really support individuals obviously lots of times in transformational roles the organization is disengaged and slightly disgruntled as well so trying to really not only spot talent but also provide the right environment for development in the backdrop of that can be actually quite challenging I think the key things are to be pragmatic in my view in those situations because the one thing that you really, really need on that transformational journey is fantastic people with great talent, but also with great will. And those who really want to go on that journey, you really do need to invest the time to develop and support and um, keep them engaged in that transformational journey. And I think that point around pragmatism comes when you start to just think, okay, the world isn't perfect, but there are many, many tools now in my toolbox helped by all of those roles that I've done. Actually, lots of those I still use from from years ago that actually means we can get started. Mm. And lots of times I think people need some sort of framework of development. It's really hard to say, so what, what would you like to do? And what do you think you need to do without any information structure or any tools? So even if I'm using tools from three different businesses and um, rehashing them, I think it's good to just get people started, get people focused. And actually, you know, I think there are very many small things that you can be doing for development that don't cost the earth. And, and you know, I think obviously we all know people do get fixated very much on training and investment in them. But actually there's so much on the job that can be done. There's so much in terms of mentorship and um, coaching and also just giving people different opportunities and stretching them into areas that actually, you know, will develop them in the areas that they they are interested in as they go. And I think that's the brilliant thing about transformational businesses. Actually, those opportunities do exist. It's not a sort of a, a, a kind of stoic, boring place where we're gradually growing. It's It's everything is going on. And if you really, really want to develop... I do believe that that is one of the best environments that you could be in because it, you're doing everything, you're, you're rolling your sleeves up. And so that's something I'm always looking for is is enough will, but actually you can do an awful lot with will for people who want to learn and develop. And I think the last thing is really interesting is inviting people to really lead that development journey themselves mm. because I think what sometimes comes with a disgruntled and a difficult organisational backdrop that is in the the, the midst of change, which is very, very challenging um, for individuals and and groups of people, is this sense that, you know, almost what's the organisation doing for me? And I think really trying to change that mindset to say, we are here to support whatever it is you'd like to do with your career and how you would like to develop. 
but the impetus for that must come from the individual with the support of the organization of me of everybody around to try to make that happen and um, I think that's quite a big mindset shift in the middle of that very difficult situation of change and everything moving in insecurity as well um, about the future. Yeah, it's it's that helping people grow by uh, allowing them to take risks in a safe environment mm. as well, isn't it? And giving Absolutely. them the trust to do that. And yeah, I can really see that. Yeah. And I know also some one of the themes that's come through is your passion about uh, putting the consumer at the heart of the brand and, and then building the organisation around that. Is that easier said than done? It really is absolutely easier said than done. I think <laughs> so many things go into the mix here about whether that is actually achievable and and it and it can be um, successful. And I think you know so much of change is about understanding the organisation around you. You know, are they really up for it? No matter what's been actually communicated, how hard should you drive? Do you have the right sponsors who might not want to support this change? There are lots of people who will find that uncomfortable or maybe don't understand it or can perceive a a power shift they don't like, which I think isn't relevant. But these are human feelings around what happens when, when change moves. And obviously, if you're trying to drive that change towards a consumer and a brand agenda, then that becomes quite tricky at times within organisations. But I think this is all has to be balanced with driving some progress. If that's the brief you've been given, then as much as you're trying to observe those sensitivities in an organisation and piece together all of that mix, to, you, you've also got to drive some progress. And I think there's a constant calibration of that going on in terms of how, how hard to push and how to manage that pace to drive the change versus at the same time being sensitive to the organisation, how fast it wants to move, but actually perhaps more importantly, whether the organisation is truly up for it. And I think that's really, really interesting because it's, it's very clear everybody understands that's the right thing to do. But actually what that requires, I think sometimes is underestimated. The scale of change in an organisation is so huge to drive that that focus. And I think, you know, that starts with do people even understand what we're trying to do, how how we need to try and do that, but actually everything that goes with that as well. And a huge a huge point around that is investment. You know, if you really want to drive that, you, you you'll need to invest in that front end so heavily. And I think what really becomes the telling point is when those big challenging decisions come up around either investment or around really making the decisions that do kind of put the consumer brand right at the forefront. And when those don't happen, I think that becomes quite an interesting point. Again, you have to listen to to think, right, okay, we're not there yet. And again, that constant recalibration, calibration again has to continue to go on. So um, I do think it's totally possible. I've definitely been in organisations where it's absolutely possible. But I think, you know, you do need that sort of complete alignment and staying strong when the time gets tough to the agenda is is really, really key as well. Definitely. And back to you, what's exciting you personally, either in your role or generally in the industry? Well, I mean, in my role, I think the sky is the limit with the brand I have. I'm so very, very lucky. I have a premium brand, as I mentioned, in a very difficult FMCG environment and you know that that is really truly a gift as well as a brand that is in such high demand from the consumer and those things are 
such a phenomenal platform if you like to, to build from so that is so exciting also this the you know the possibilities of the brand and and the Saint Pierre brand and, and where we can take that I think is just hugely hugely exciting as well so those that that from the the, the here and now I think from an industry perspective the role of AI and its endless possibilities particularly creatively is so exciting and I think particularly for me in, in the in the area of efficiency and effectiveness, because the possibilities of how AI will play a role in, in creative, to me, is just a huge fast forward in terms of um, how we can drive, you know, a lot of those, those brilliant returns, but in a, a much speedier, um, more efficient, efficient way. And of course, what goes with that is a lot of unknown. Yeah. Um, and I can really see, you know, I don't, I definitely... Um, you know, I'm only scratching sort of at the surface of, of what AI can offer in my my experience and knowledge so far in that territory. And I think, you know, some people can find that a little bit disconcerting. For me, that's uh, positive. I think I, you know, and it goes probably back to lots of things I've told you about myself today. I'm intrigued and curious to know about what this can bring us. But on the whole, I think we need to embrace it with a really positive mindset because the, the possibilities, I do think, will be endless. I wouldn't expect anything less from you as a disruptor. <laughs> so we're going to move on to the, the final section of the podcast now, where we get a bit more personal and move away um, a little from the world of work. So let's start with, what's your idea of a perfect weekend? Yeah, I mean, a perfect weekend for me, it's pretty easy, really. It's somewhere hot, easy to reach, quick couple of hours, bit of culture, very good food, lovely drinks. And yeah, I'm in heaven. Uh, that, that's pretty much it. If we have to do that in the winter, if you, if you put a restriction on, it would probably be, you know, somewhere like the Lake District, love the outdoors and then love getting into a cosy pub at the end of all of that. Either of those float my boat. Very, very happy uh, with either of those options at the weekend. Sounds fantastic. And there's no restrictions whatsoever. <laughs> and on the theme of no restrictions and coming back to your love of science maybe if you could time travel to any period with no consequence where and when would you go yeah I mean there's a couple that spring to mind the second world war definitely springs to mind which sounds a bit morbid but I think it was also a huge time of united front I think you know the camaraderie would be something I'd just love to have experienced. But probably in the end, I settled on on the Tudor times. I only want to go there for a week, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. uh, I really don't want to live in those times. Oh, my goodness, the grottiness and the, the oh, the, just the brutality. Um, just it's not something I'd particularly want to, to experience. But I do find those times exceptionally fascinating in really the influence of a lot of, you know, the, the, what we experience today. And um very much just would have would have liked to have just seen a little snapshot of that. See what it was really like. Definitely. And what's the last thing you did that gave you childlike joy? Yeah, I mean this is is fairly easy for me. It's it's um you know, I think it's it's pretty much singing and dancing to to anything. But I think the number one song if I if I want to go there is probably Whitney Houston's Higher Love with Kygo. Something in that song does something to my brain. And if I just get that on really loud, I could dance around the kitchen and just lose myself in that for a good five minutes. Fantastic. So basically you're saying kitchen disco brings you to Absolutely. 
Exactly. One of my favourite questions, and Wendy and I are always kind of arguing, well, we're negotiating over who's going to ask this one, but (laughs) how would you fare in a zombie apocalypse? Oh, yes. Now, I mean, this one, I, I... I think I just wouldn't is my answer. I just <laughs> need humans. Um, I need the variety and spontaneity of, of human beings. And that doesn't sound like a place I could get that. So I think I might just quietly sort of sleek off, slink off into the, uh, the dark shadows and, and let everybody else get on with it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I argue that you would rebrand the apocalypse and, be, you know, completely disrupt the whole uh, environment instead. possibly how would your friends describe you I mean definitely loud fun (laughs) kind though I think up for it and pretty much always ready to party with a bit of persuasion (laughs) I love that and actually on the the sort of the party and the food but um what's your favorite restaurant or food experience yeah this one is so hard because there are just so many great places, aren't there? And so many different kind of cuisines to choose from. But I think probably, you know, I've gone for Tom Kerridge's Hand and Flowers. Um, we went there for a real treat uh, a weekend once. And I think what I love about that is it's so down to earth. And it's so, it's just proper food, mm. but such beautiful food. And so it kind of combines for me everything I love about food and that it's high quality. It's so perfectly prepared and it's very, very, it, it, it's, it's absolutely delicious, but it is pretty grounded. It's still a pub. And that probably um, is, is my ideal idea of, of where to spend some time. Oh, that sounds lovely. Now, I think I'm going to guess the answer to, to this one because you've sort of spoken about your love of sort of dancing around the kitchen and singing. But do you like karaoke as well? And if so, what is your go-to song? Yeah, I'll always be persuaded, worryingly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go and do that as a, you know, as a book it in for every Saturday night. But absolutely, as part of the party vibe, I'll be there right at the front. I think um, this one has to be dictated by what I can actually sing. And the only thing I can truly sing without not murdering is um, Carly Simon's You're So Vain. Um, oh, and that's really because it's a slightly lower, basically I can manage it with my, my slightly lower voice, which is really bad at the moment because I've, I've had this awful cough and cold. But yeah, anything too high, I, I just can't manage. So um, I just have to opt for anything that's within my range. And uh, that seems to be it. Or duets, you see, there's always a way. Let somebody else take the lead and just do the whole thing. This is what I do with with Wendy, you see. So Wendy is the soprano, (laughs) I do the lower ones. (laughs) Fantastic. Megan, it's been such a joy to have you on the podcast. I've been wanting to to have you as as a guest for such a long time. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about or any closing thoughts from you? No, I don't think anything for me that we didn't cover has been pretty extensive, but mainly for me, just thank you so much for having me. It's been a really interesting journey for me back through my life, actually. So a really enjoyable hour and thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.